0: We're reading from Acts eleven nineteen through 30. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there was some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number of those that heard, believed, and turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with all resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And considerable numbers were added to the Lord, And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers of people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there would definitely be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And to the extent that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did this, sending it with Barnabas and Saul to the elders. This is the word of the Lord, and it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love.
1: a kinder translation. I like that. Yeah. I don't know. There's something about spaking that is pretty good. Um, That was just a miscommunication between Michael and me about version. So sorry about that. But thank you, Diane, for doing that. All right. So we are going through the book of Acts and trying to understand the story of the early church. And we're using a lens, a couple of lenses. One lens is shalom and one lens is witness. And, uh, I know you've heard it a million times from up here, but shalom is peace and wholeness. It's God putting things back to the way that they should be, because they certainly aren't the way as they should be, are they? If you look at my life, your life, all of our lives individually, if you look at us as a community, if you look at us as a world, we all long for peace and wholeness in ourselves, in our community, inside the church and outside the church. That is the shalom that we're longing for. In addition to shalom, we're looking at this idea of witness because it is through the witness to and of the followers of Jesus that shalom actually comes. So, over the past few weeks, Harrison, Andy, and Chris have shown us how the witness to or of Stephen, Paul, sorry, Stephen, Philip, Saul, or Paul, and Cornelius has spread the gospel and introduced the possibility of shalom into those people's lives, and into the lives of others who have received Jesus, and also into their community. And now we're gonna see God extending shalom well beyond that community. Now, it's really important that you're reminded that the apostles and the early, early believers who came out of, uh, came out of Jerusalem all came out of Judaism. And, and Harrison talked about this some last week, but I'm gonna press it more. This was an intensely closed off culture. This was a we versus them culture. And the idea of the Jews was that anybody on the outside had no participation or rights in our religious culture, nor can they have a relationship with the true God. Those outside cannot have, do not deserve, and should not seek. Shalom. They hated them. And that hate even included those with whom they shared a cultural and religious history the Samaritans who were descendants of the Northern tribe of Israel. I hate to say it, but in a word, the Jewish community of Jerusalem was racist. Yes, a person could, through a long process, convert to Judaism and then be accepted. But short of that, it was we versus them. And recall what Harrison told us last week, the apostles and early believers thought they were fulfilling Jewish destiny as Jews. And they had no idea despite the teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures that the Gentiles had anything to do with God or Shalom. Now with that in the background, let's think about the arc of what has happened in the last few chapters in Acts. It's stunning. Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 6 and 7 led to further persecution of the church to the point that Jewish believers left Jerusalem and went out into the surrounding communities and nations. That was alluded to actually in our first verse today, wasn't it? A few weeks ago, Harrison focused on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. But earlier in chapter 8, a part that he didn't cover, Philip goes to Samaria, shares the story of Jesus, and remarkably enough, Samaritans become followers of Jesus. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They thought they were worthless people. That's why Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan, was so shocking to the Jewish community. Now Samaritans are becoming followers of Jesus. That was so shocking that Peter and John in Acts 8 are sent by the church in Jerusalem to investigate. And lo and behold, much to their amazement, God has indeed brought salvation to those people of Samaria. But the Samaritans are only a half step away from Judaism. They're descendants of the northern kingdoms. I said. So maybe maybe that's not that big a step. We take a little detour in Acts 9. Saul is converted. Chris emphasized to us what conversion looks like. But he did note that Paul was sharing the gospel in the synagogues of the Jews, just like any follower would have done in the early church. He was going to other Jews. But in chapter 10, as Harrison described last week, things are going to get shaken up. Peter has this vision. And he's commanded to preach the gospel to Cornelius' family. They're Gentiles. These people aren't a half-step from Judaism. They are pagans. They're worthless. They're hated in the sight of the Jews. But the gift of the Holy Spirit is indeed poured out on this family of the Gentiles. But again, at this point, only to one family. And that family, deemed by the Jews in Acts ten two as being a devout man and one who feared God, who with all his household... Uh, sorry, who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to Jewish people and prayed to God continually. You see what's happening here? God is slowly expanding the reach of the gospel. In his graciousness toward the apostles, he's trying to slowly wean them off their addiction to separateness and exclusivity. And today we're going to see that God is about the business of witness and shalom with the Gentiles in a really big way as the gospel comes to Antioch. I only have one conclusion, one application. Tribalism defeats shalom and has no role in the church or in the way in which God's people act and interact in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray for your guidance today as we consider your word and how it might apply to us. Um, Lord, there is so much dissonance and discontent and and division in the world we just pray that we could catch a glimpse of of the shalom that you promise in the future and that you hope that we can work with you to work out some even in these days in jesus name amen now our text in verse 19 again describes those who left jerusalem due to the persecution of the church and they were speaking the word or the gospel only to the Jews where they went, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, now, who were these men of Cyprus and Cyrene? you got to go back to the first sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost. There were Jews and visitors from all of the Mediterranean world there, they heard this violent rushing wind of the Spirit coming upon the followers of Jesus, and they gathered, and they heard the followers of Jesus speaking in various languages. And those who said in Acts 2, verse 8 and eleven through 11, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya and Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. The result of Peter's sermon was that 3,000 people received the word, were baptized, and added to the number of followers of Jesus. But notice in verse 10, Jews and proselytes. Those proselytes are not people who were born Jews, but people who have converted to Judaism later in life. That's what a proselyte means in this context: is somebody who has converted to Judaism. And they would not have had that same cultural upbringing of a Jew who who would have been raised in this we versus them um, kind of culture. So when they went to Antioch, when the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, when the proselytes of the Jewish proselytes of Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch, they sought out people like themselves of Greek cultural heritage, people outside the synagogue as well. And in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So these people who had no cultural or religious relationship to the Jews or Judaism believed and turned to the Lord. The text doesn't tell us what the manifestations of this belief were, but it must have been substantial with gifts of the Spirit that corroborated and confirmed that they were indeed receiving the Spirit. Because word gets back shortly to the church in Jerusalem, and the church and the church leaders go, whoa, wait a minute, we got to look into this. So what do they do? They send Barnabas off to see what's going on. This is just like Peter and John going to the Samaritans, isn't it? What does Barnabas find and do? Verse 23, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. In addition, he apparently continues to preach the gospel to the Greeks, because in verse 24, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now, we don't have any indication that Barnabas reported back to the Jerusalem church at this point, but I suspect that he did. But the numbers of new believers were so great that it demanded that he actually stay there and further teach these new followers. But there was too much to do. So what did Barnabas do? He recalled that Saul, remember Saul, Paul, he was up in Tarsus, and so he left the church in Antioch, went up to Tarsus, got Paul, and came back. Just as an aside, total aside, Antioch, this is called Syrian Antioch. Syrian Antioch today is in Turkey. It was destroyed in the earthquakes that Turkey and Syria had. I was reading an article recently that 200,000 people have moved out of, the, the whole population's moved out. So the, the religious and cultural heritage of this community is, has been destroyed, which is just so sad. Um, I don't know why I wanted to say that, but it, it's really, you know, you put it into the context of, of some of the things that are happening today. But anyway, Antioch and Tarsus are not close to each other, so Barnabas has to troop over to Tarsus to get Saul and comes back. And there was a lot to do, and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch, it says in verse 26, and for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, let me pause for a minute there. What is this thing, Christians? Why does it point out that they were called Christians here? Why does Luke point this out? Now, remember that before this, in this community, there would have been two people groups, Jews, and Greeks. There were no Muslims. Muhammad wasn't born until 570, okay? There were no Muslim cultures around then, all right? So they were Jewish or they were Greek. But apparently the number and the lifestyle and the witness of those who had become followers of Jesus showed that they had left their old Gentile way of life, but they weren't living as Jews, so they needed another name for them. So they called them Christians. Some people wonder whether it was a pejorative name or a complimentary name. Probably depends a little bit on the context. Barnabas and Saul spent a long time, we don't know exactly how long, teaching this new Christian community, Antioch. And this teaching had great impact, not only in numbers, but in the maturity of those who were following Jesus. It's not long before prophets arrive from Jerusalem and one of them predicts a coming fathom. That's a fathom, excuse me, famine. There we go. And the members of the church remember they are pretty well off because this is a culturally important community. Uh, they decided to do something for their poorer fellow believers in Jerusalem. And in proportion that any of the disciples had means, verse 29, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Isn't that a little glimpse of Shalom? Isn't that a little bit of how things ought to be? Those who have been blessed to have much sharing with those who, for every reason, don't have as much. So that's a review of our text today. Now, as I said earlier, I think this passage is pretty clear. It's very forceful, and it tells us that tribalism or factionalism or racism or exclusivity or anything else you want to call it is wrong. It was wrong for the early church, and it was difficult for them to learn it. And it's wrong for us 2,000 years later. Why is it wrong? Because it defeats shalom. It has no role in the church or in the way in which we act and interact in the world. So I want to think about this in three communities or relationships. I want to think about it in the local church, Hope Chapel, a little bit. I want to think about it in the church universal. That would be all believers in all the world. That's the church universal. And think about it a little bit in the culture. I think about it this way because in my opinion, there needs to be shalom in the local church before there's gonna be shalom in the church universal. And there needs to be shalom in the church universal before there's any hope for the culture. So regarding the local church. Now you might be thinking, now wait a minute. This seemed like a concern between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. There's nothing in here about conflict and factionalism in the church in Antioch and you're right there's not but it didn't take long in the young church for factionalism and division to appear paul several places in his letters writes about this the most one of the most prominent being in first corinthians this church was founded a few years after the church in Antioch he writes to the corinthians chapter 1 in first corinthians for i've been informed concerning you my brethren by chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, Cephas you probably know, that's Peter, right? But who's Apollos? Well, he was a Jewish person from Alexandria who had converted, he was from Egypt, and he was noted for his knowledge of the scripture, his rhetorical skills, his fervent spirit, and his boldness. He had come to Corinth after Paul left and was teaching the early believers more about following Jesus, and apparently he was a tremendous speaker. This was a highly sought after skill in Greek culture. This was like, you know, Michael Jordan of Greek culture was a speaker, not a basketball player, okay? it's Hard to believe, isn't it, but it's true. All right, so so Apollos has been teaching, and and now Paul's hearing, wait a minute, people are saying, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of people. What is this? The church is divided into these factions, and later in chapter 3, Paul states that this factionalism is is causing jealousy and strife, which is absolutely the opposite of Shalom. Now, we're going to look at how Paul counters this dispute, but Let's pause here for a minute and think about what can cause division and factionalism today in our church. Well, theology can, right, in the local church. That's ironic, isn't it, that theology can cause division? Um, It's one reason why last year the elders spent time leading us through a discussion of what our core beliefs are here at Hope Chapel, the things that we agree on agreeing on, really what we think you have to believe to be a follower of Jesus but we also spent time discussing the things that we can agree that we don't have to disagree, that we don't have to agree on, which is really useful. That type of thoughtful discussion leads to Shalom. Of course, in our day and age, politics can invade into the local church and lead to divisions and factions. We certainly see that happening in some churches. I'm gonna mention it again later, but we need to be sure that we don't try to identify Jesus with any political party we should not try to identify any political party with Jesus. To put it another way, no political party speaks for Jesus and how his followers should think and live. Now, now this really should not be surprising to anybody. I hope everybody agrees with this. I mean, po- political parties are led by sinful men and women who have a host of motives, most of them self-serving. serving How could they possibly be speaking words that are always consistent with the words of Scripture? Voting one way or another doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't necessitate that you necessitate that you fought, vote a certain way. And thankfully, I don't hear much about those kind of divisions in our church, but I certainly see it and hear of it in other churches. And those are just two of many things that can divide the local church and destroy Shalom. Now, as we look back at this passage in Corinthians, what was it? Well, it was personality, wasn't It, it was Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus. Now, Paul counters this with two arguments. In chapters 2 and 3, he notes the differences between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. He notes the difference between a spiritual man and a natural man. Needless to say, thinking spiritually leads to shalom, thinking naturally leads to division. But most importantly, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Paul's argument here is that there should not be divisions and factions in the local church because the success and the growth of the local church is up to God. We all have our parts to do, church members, church leaders, everybody's got stuff we got to do, but we cannot congratulate ourselves when the local church flourishes. It's God that has given and continues to give the growth. And when we recognize that and live it out, when we recognize that God It's God that gives us our church family, our church success, our church witness. To recognize and live that out is to be filled with humility. It is to love one another without jealousy or strife. It is to live with Shalom in the local church. And it is to live as a witness to the outside world. That's how it should be in the local church. Let's think beyond the local church, let's think about the church universal. Now I don't know about you, But it has bothered me that if tribalism and division and racism is wrong in the church, then why is Sunday morning the most segregated day of the week? Now, that's actually been partially addressed in this series. I don't know if you remember it early on. Early on, it was pointed out that while it is true that Sunday is a very segregated day in the church universal, the reality is that the church universal is probably the most diverse population on earth. It ranges from those of European heritage, Hispanic heritage, African heritage, Caribbean heritage, Asian heritage. I've left some others out. I'm sorry. The church universal is incredibly diverse. And one might say that the church universal has actually fulfilled the promise of this initial expansion of the church from the Jews to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. But I think this promise and glory of the diversity of the church universal is under fire from some in our culture who proclaim to be followers of Jesus and I just want to caution us all about this many of these people have wrongly combined a sort of Christian identity with a political identity I talked about that earlier but some have gone further and combined Christian identity with a national identity or in its worst cases even a racial identity and it's destroying shalom in our churches our denominations in our families in our culture And our text today tells us this is completely and utterly wrong. The Jewish leaders of the early church could no longer think that being a Christian means being or becoming a Jew, religiously or ethnically. Today, no one dare use the name of Jesus while promoting a national or racial identity. And I am horrified that I see this happening. I don't know if you do, but I do. And it's horrible. And while I want to promote shalom in the church universal, I am not going to listen to such nonsense to being promoted without stating that it's antithetical to the gospel and to the scriptures. And the social power of social media and the use of social media by many of these types of people is, is huge. And, and we need to be careful about guarding our hearts. We can slip into some difficult, confusing situations. We need to guard our hearts and we need to guard the hearts of our children against this as well. You'll occasionally read about teens and young adults who've gotten involved in in really things that sound good, but they're not. Now, opposing those who wrongly use the name of Jesus is opposing a negative. That's important. But on the positive side, how do we as individuals and as a church body promote and proclaim the diversity of the church universal if our weekly worship is so segregated? Well, we got to do it at some other time of the week, don't we? If we're not going to do it on Sundays. We do some things here at Hope Chapel. We support Black Suits Initiative. We work alongside them every month in our food distribution. I'm sure that racial diversity of those working and serving our community is a tremendous witness to those who come by. Many of us have participated in the Unity Prayer Parade, which occurs some falls, not every fall, but some falls, where church leaders and church members from A remarkable diversity of racial and ethnic groups come together for worship and prayer in downtown Greensboro. It's a great witness to a culture and a community that still suffers from racism, both past and present. And I'm sure the family room, which we support, supports foster families, regardless of race and ethnicity. So we do some things here at Hope Chapel to promote and proclaim that diversity, but as individuals, I think we all need to think about what should we do. And I'm I'm not gonna tell you what to do because that's up for you to discern I, I do think there's an interesting one pointed out in our passage today the richer church the people in the richer church help the people in the poorer church right that's, maybe that's a model i don't know i suspect that many of us are better off than many of our christian brothers and sisters who live in southeast greensboro maybe there's something that we ought to think about doing as individuals and finally, I have to say that this tribalism, factionalism, exclusivity, whatever you want to call it, is disturbingly quite alive in our culture. People who try to tell you otherwise are, are not paying attention. <laughs> Nanette walks regularly in our neighborhood. Um, I don't, not because I'm lazy, but i ride a bicycle, okay? But she walks, all right? And of course, if you walk in your neighborhood like Nanette does, you see the same people over and over again, right? And you always greet them and say hello. Recently, she was walking along the park that's on the edge of our neighborhood, and she saw somebody she didn't know, and she said she greeted him. She didn't think much of it. But the next person she saw, who was one of the regulars in the neighborhood, stopped her and said, do you know who that person is that's walking around our neighborhood? I've never seen him before. And Nanette, who was kind of bewildered by the question, said, well, I I just think they're out for a walk in the park on a nice day. I mean, what's the big deal? And that person muttered something about strangers in neighborhoods. See, division is rampant in our culture, isn't it? It's we versus them, whoever them happens to be. So do we as followers of Jesus have anything to say outside the church about this? I think we do. I think we have a duty and obligation to speak up when we hear tribalism, racism, exclusivity being promoted outside the church around us. And why is that? It's because we're all made in the image of God. All humans have worth and dignity because they are made in the image of God. We need to try to do this gracefully. I think Nanette did a really good job. She did that pretty gracefully. I'm not sure I would have been so nice, but anyway. But we need to not let such statements go unchallenged. To say nothing is to give our assent. So our text today is clear. God has called himself called people to himself from all nations, all races, and all ethnic groups. When tribalism or factionalism or racism or exclusivity is present in the church or in a culture, shalom shalom can never emerge. As the early church had to break out of its tribalism and racism, so we must today oppose it as well. And when we press against that in the church and in our culture, Jesus tells us some remarkable things. He tells us that we are witnessing to him and we're helping shalom to emerge. Jesus said in John 17, 23, I in them and you, God, in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you, Father, sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Our unity as a church, our shalom, witnesses to the world that God sent Jesus. And Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And when we love one another,
0: shalom emerges. Amen.